Well, good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. We are glad to be with you here on this Sunday morning as we worship together across Facebook and YouTube. Today, we are going to continue with our latest teaching series that we're calling Why Church, which is to ask the big question, why is it that today in an age of increasing disillusionment with institutions of all kinds, but especially religious institutions in that kind of society, why is it that anybody would still choose to be a part of a church? And I think this is an incredibly important question and an untimely question for us to ask as a church at the Oceanside Sanctuary because, of course, right now we are going through a process of revising and rewriting our values and our vision, our mission, and our priorities as a church. This is a process that we are going to be going through over the next couple of months. And so we're teaching this series, this seven-week series, partly as a way for us to stir up our imagination about what could be possible as we define what our mission and priorities will be for the next three years as a church. So today, I want to tackle the question, uh, what is the gospel or what is the future of the gospel? We're going to do that by reading from Matthew chapter 4, but before we do, would you just stop for a moment and say a prayer with me? Let's take a second here just to center our hearts and center our minds as we open up Scripture and we try to discern together how it is that God is leading us. God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to come together today uh, to gather across Facebook and YouTube to uh, turn our hearts and our minds toward you. We ask that in this moment, even though we are separated by distance, that you would join our hearts together, that we would be of one mind, of one spirit, that we would be a people no matter how different we are, no matter how diverse we might be, no matter what our uh, ideologies, uh, no matter what our doctrinal beliefs or pro political persuasions might be, God, we ask that you would gather us around uh, your table of fellowship today and that you would direct our hearts toward your good news, that we would learn to be a people who are good news to our community. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many years ago, one of my favorite authors, somebody who had a really powerful impact on my, uh, my Christianity in my 20s, uh, was speaking at a conference. And so that conference, even though it was in Phoenix, Arizona, and even though I lived in Park City, Utah, I was such a groupie of this particular speaker that I actually purchased a plane ticket and booked a hotel and went out to this conference to see Dallas Willard by myself. Some of you know who Dallas Willard was. He was a, a Christian writer and theologian and philosopher. And in my mid to late 20s, he had a really profound impact upon my faith formation. And so uh, having read a couple of his books and really been influenced by his thinking, I was excited to go uh, to a conference where he was the main speaker. And so I jumped on a plane and over the weekend uh, went and attended this conference. And at the very first session, where Dallas Willard was speaking, he did something that I'd never seen anybody do before at a Christian conference. And it was a little bit shocking to a lot of the other people in the room as well. It was held at a church. We showed up and there were a couple of hundred people there. It wasn't a huge conference. And, and Dallas Willard walked in and uh, began his first session by uh, saying hello to everybody, greeting everybody. And then he walked over to like a little table that was up on the stage and he pulled a pamphlet off of the table and he began to tell a story. He said, you know, uh, last week I was, I happened to be at another church and uh, it was, you know, 
uh, of a particular denomination and it was of a particular tradition and but you know in every other respect it was like you know no different than any other church and he said in the lobby they had these pamphlets and the pamphlet was essentially a gospel tract right it was a a little trifold flyer that had been printed for the sole purpose of evangelizing other people, of delivering the gospel message to them in printed form. I'm sure you've seen these sorts of gospel tracts in the past. Sometimes they have cartoons in them. Sometimes they have, you know, pictures of people maybe burning in hell. And then there's a, a short version of whatever that church defines the gospel as. Well, Dallas Willard took this pamphlet and he said, I wanted to share this with you. This is a pamphlet that was in this church I was in just recently. And here's what it says about the gospel. He opened it up and he read it. And what he read would be very familiar to most of you. It basically just said, uh, you know, uh, we are all born sinners, that we're all born broken, that we're all destined to eternal damnation, eternal torment in hell. We've all been distant from God or separated from God by our sins. But Jesus Christ came to die for our sins so that if we believe in him, then we don't have to worry about what happens to us after, after we die. We will go to heaven and be with Jesus for eternity for the rest of our lives. And then the pamphlet gave a simple pre-written prayer that anybody could pray. And some of you would recognize this as the sinner's prayer, some version of the sinner's prayer, something that goes along the lines of, you know, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've made mistakes in my lives, but I ask that you would forgive me and I believe in Jesus and I commit my life to you. Some version of that kind of prayer. Dallas Willard read through this pamphlet to the couple hundred people in the room, most of whom were pastors like me, leaders of some kind. He finished reading it and then he looked at the audience and he said, friends, I want you to know that this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought for a moment that the wind was going to like get sucked out of the room, that everybody didn't quite know what to do. Because, of course, it's very likely that most of the people who were in the room had come to their faith by receiving that kind of gospel. And most of them had probably come to faith by praying exactly that kind of prayer. This is a really common formulation of the gospel. And here was this man this Christian theologian and philosopher and teacher, a, a, an ordained Southern Baptist minister, saying that this was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, you simply can't find this gospel anywhere in the actual gospels. If you open up any gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you read through those gospels front to back, you won't find anything that resembles this formula and this kind of prayer to save you. And so I want to sort of begin with that to challenge you just the way that Dallas Willard challenged us that day. It's very possible that many of you uh, listening today or watching today also came to faith with that kind of presentation of the gospel. But today I want to open the actual gospels. We're actually going to turn to Matthew chapter 4, and I want to ask that you would sort of Open your mind and open your heart for a moment as we read this together and ask yourself the question, what's the, what's the gospel that Jesus actually presents in these words? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start at Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to cover a little bit of territory here. I'm going to skip over some of these passages, 
I encourage you to go back, read the whole thing, make sure that I don't leave anything important out. But I want to point out some of the highlights that begin in Matthew chapter 4, starting in about verse 12, and then we're actually going to move through to a portion of Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with me, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 simply says this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you and you're not just reading this off the screen as we read this together, I would encourage you, if you're comfortable doing this, to make a little note in your Bible right there to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Make a little note there that says, this is Jesus's gospel. Right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, just to put this into a little bit of context, of course, right before this, uh, Jesus went through his temptation in the wilderness. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And it says, uh, backing up to verse 12, that this is sort of the beginning of when Jesus went around and began to preach all around the countryside near where he was born and raised. And so by the time we get to verse 17, this is sort of the culmination of that section from Matthew 24, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, where it gives us essentially what Jesus's preaching message was. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see this kind of phrase over and over and over again. Theologians of all kinds, conservative, liberal, uh, across the spectrum, theologians agree that Jesus's Gospel was some version of this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, or repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Some version of that, depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, is what we see over and over and over again. Now, the trouble, of course, is that when we read these words, these words and phrases are loaded with all kinds of preconceived notions. For example, when we read this, understanding the gospel might be difficult because the word repent tends to carry a lot of cultural meaning for us. For people who are raised in the United States and probably were exposed to church as young children, for people who come from in the United States, a religious tradition that has a kind of pietistic background this word repent tends to mean that we feel really badly about the terrible things that we've done. We tend to think of repentance as a kind of emotional, sort of overwhelming sense of sorrow about the personal sins that we've committed. And so whatever it was that you were told you shouldn't do when you were a child, right? maybe stealing or maybe lying or maybe cheating you know, on a game with your friends or or maybe thinking lustful thoughts, or smoking cigarettes, or dating somebody that your parents didn't approve of. All of these things are the kinds of like personal faults or failings that we're taught as children are our sins that we should feel very badly about. And I'm not saying that all those things aren't bad or can't be bad. Many times, of course, those kinds of things can genuinely be destructive in our lives. But what I'm saying is that that really isn't a biblical concept of sin. Sin is much bigger than the small mistakes that you made growing up, or even the small mistakes that you make as an adult. And so consequently, when I read this passage to you where Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's very likely that repent triggers in your mind this thought of you feeling terrible about the mistakes that you've made in your life. And I'm not even saying that you shouldn't feel terrible when you make genuine mistakes in your life. All I'm saying is that's not what this means. 
You see, the word repent doesn't necessarily mean that you feel badly because you've made mistakes. That's what we teach children because we want children to feel badly and to learn that they should have empathy for the impact that their poor choices have on other people. Repent in the Bible has a much broader, much bigger meaning. Repent literally means to do the exact opposite of what you are currently doing. It it means to have a total and complete change of mind. Another way to think about it would be repentance means turning 180 degrees and going in the exact opposite direction of whatever direction you are going in. So when Jesus says repent to the people that he is speaking to, he's saying, listen, You need to completely change your mind. You you need to completely turn around and go the other way. You need to totally go about things differently. Today, that word repentance might take on the meaning of forget everything that you're doing because there is something better available to you now. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're doing in your life that seems futile or meaningless or is actually producing destruction or oppression in your lives, Jesus would come along and say, hey, forget about all of that and go this way instead. In other words, repentance isn't an accusation, it's an invitation. So when Jesus goes around the countryside and says repent, he isn't pointing his finger and wagging his finger at people and accusing them of being sinners. Instead, he is going around the countryside saying, Come with me. And that is exactly, by the way, what we see happen a little bit later here in verse 19. So if you have your Bible in front of you, we're going to read a little bit farther. So again, verse 17 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in verse 18, we enter into a new section in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus sort of takes this message of repentance and he begins to invite other people. Verse 18 says this, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus says, verse 19, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And so, One thing that I have said is that the word repent really is not an accusation, it's an invitation. That Jesus is inviting people to go in a completely different direction in their lives. And here we see that that takes on the form of an overt invitation to a particular group of people. Jesus comes to a bunch of fishermen and he says, hey, forget all that, instead come with me because there's something better available to you. That, of course, raises the question, what is that something better that's available to them? For for that, we have to go back to verse 17 and revisit the second half of Jesus' invitation. So again, Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent or come with me for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is the second phrase that we have to unpack and pick apart a little bit. Because just like the word repentance, when we hear this phrase, kingdom of heaven, or in other uh, gospels, the kingdom of God, 
Our brains tend to get a little bit confused, and again, because we're raised in the United States, where we have a very particular tradition about how we think about salvation, our minds immediately associate this phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, with some kind of disembodied eternal afterlife. Because you see, just like that gospel tract that Dallas Willard read to that group of pastors several years ago in that conference I went to, we tend to think that salvation is all about what happens to us after we die. We're looking for some sort of eternal fire insurance because we've been told that because we're such dreadful sinners that God has condemned us to be tormented for an eternity in hell. And salvation, therefore, means this kind of existential salvation, this sort of eternal, transcendent, metaphysical salvation from this awful fate that occurs to us after we die. But that actually is not what this phrase, the kingdom of God, refers to in the Old Testament. In the ancient Near East, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are living under the oppressive rule and reign of the kingdom of Rome. The Roman Empire is an occupying force in Jesus' day in ancient Israel. And for generation after generation, after the Israelites had returned from, from their Babylonian exile, they have been waiting and longing and anticipating this promised Messiah who would deliver them from their bondage, who would deliver them from their oppression, who would deliver them from this terrible yoke of being under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus comes and he extends an invitation to a group of middle-class, poorly educated Jewish people and says to them, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, they don't hear, hey, you better feel really sorry for all the terrible things you've done because if you don't, you're going to go to hell when you die. That's not at all what they hear. No, what they hear is, hey, forget all that. Put down your fishing nets. Put down whatever it is that you're doing because God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom is here now for you. And what they would hear in that, of course, is a revolutionary call. A call that the power that is currently ruling over their lives, this oppressive form of government, this oppressive form of militarized a strength that occupies their streets every single day, that there is something alternative available to them to break that yoke of imprisonment and oppression and slavery. That's exactly what they would have heard. They would have heard Jesus inviting them into a new kind of life, a kind of life that's not under the thumb of the Romans, but is instead liberated by the new kingdom of God, the God who has been promising to them for generations, for hundreds of years actually, that they would someday be freed from their captors. So then Jesus' gospel here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, really sounds more like Jesus inviting these people who are beaten and battered and oppressed and broken down and subjugated under the rule of the Romans. It would be an invitation to them to drop whatever they're doing, to drop their fishing nets, to drop their, their businesses, to drop their schooling, to, to drop whatever plans they're following, to drop what they're doing and follow him because there is liberation coming in the form of God's power to free them once and for all. 
So that really is the gospel that Jesus brings to this group of people. And we can see that gospel playing out if we just read a little bit further. So if you skip with me from Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, over to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, I want you to see the very next thing that happens. Jesus brings his message, his invitation into a new kind of rulership, a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of life that's free from the Romans. And then he begins to explicitly invite people to follow him to make that happen. And in verse 23, we see the effects of this new kingdom of God that's available. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. There it is, the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those who had seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. So the very next thing that happens after Jesus invites these people to leave behind their old, oppressed, broken, subjugated lives and enter into a new life under a new ruler, under a new form of government that is aligned with God. When Jesus brings those people with him, the consequences of this new kingdom are that people who are sick become well. People who are oppressed and afflicted by their mental illnesses become liberated from those illnesses and diseases. And we see this even a little further. If you read into Matthew chapter 5, the very next thing we see, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with Jesus' Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes say exactly the same thing. Jesus goes up on a mountain and and he says to everybody, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He goes on to list off all the people who under this new kingdom of God suddenly find blessing and freedom from their old afflictions, their old wounds, and their old captors. This is Jesus's gospel. And it should come as no surprise to us. This is, of course, Matthew chapter 4, but If you read sort of the same thing that's happening in Luke chapter 4, another one of the gospel passages, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, is this great story. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into a local synagogue on the day that they are reading from the scroll, and he goes up front to read from the scroll in the synagogue during one of their worship services. He opens up the scroll, and he reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There it is again, good news. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus is exactly that a new kind of power, a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of order has come from God. And that new order is good news to the poor. It proclaims freedom to the prisoners. It proclaims recovery of sight to the blind. And it proclaims release for those who are oppressed. Again and again and again, throughout the Gospels, when we read about Jesus' good news, this is exactly the form that his good news takes. He comes to a particular group of people, namely those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are oppressed, and he brings to them liberation and freedom from those conditions in their lives. We see it all across all of Jesus' teachings. 
Jesus' core teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with that proclamation that the poor are blessed. Those who mourn will be comforted. And then it continues to unpack for us the ways in which we can be free from all those things in our lives that oppress us. Jesus' message then is essentially a message of liberation, a message of freedom. And this should make a lot of sense to us because, of course, we recently went through a teaching series where we talked all about encountering God. And we visited a bunch of stories in the Old Testament so that we could see what it looked like in the Old Testament when people had a genuine encounter with God. We read the story of Abram and Sarah and how they were not able to have children, and so God's promise to them came and liberated them from their hopelessness that they would not be able to have a family to pass their lineage down to. We also read about the story of Hagar, who was so... Uh, mistreated and oppressed by Abram and Sarah. And how Hagar, who was treated so violently and so poorly by Sarah in particular, was cast off and sent out in the wilderness with her son to die. And God came and encountered them and brought them physical liberation, brought them physical sustenance, saved their lives, and made a way for Hagar and her son to be blessed and to flourish. And then, of course, we read about the story of Shifra and Puah, those amazing midwives in Egypt and their army of midwives whose encounter with God gave them the strength and the courage to resist Pharaoh's order that they slaughter all of the Jewish boys who were born in that country. All of these stories have something in common, and what they all have in common they also share with Jesus' gospel in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And that thing that they all have in common is this. That when people are down and beaten and crushed and hurting and oppressed and subjugated, that God comes as a divine presence and brings liberation and freedom and healing to their lives. That is the gospel. The essence of the gospel is this encounter that we have with some divine presence that delivers us into new possibilities, new freedom, new blessing in our lives. We take these moments of liberation to be these powerful encounters where our lives are made new and transformed. Last week, we talked about how Jesus's way of articulating this to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John was to say that we had to experience a kind of new birth, that this this divine presence, this encounter with God comes like the wind. We can't predict where it comes from or where it goes, but what it does, the effect that it has is it produces a new transformation in our lives. And of course, it doesn't just stop with our lives because Jesus doesn't come just to save individuals. Rather, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, what we see is that Jesus has come to bring that new birth, that new liberation to an entire people, namely those Jews who are oppressed and crushed and impoverished at the hands of their own religious elites as well as at the hands of the occupying Roman Empire. And so the gospel then is this expression of liberation. It is this expression of bringing hope to those who are hopeless. I love the way that the great black American theologian James Cone puts this in his book, God of the Oppressed. 
Here's what James Cohn says. He says, And yet the Christian gospel is more than a transcendent reality, more than going to heaven when I die to shout salvation as I fly. It is also an imminent reality, a powerful, liberating presence among the poor right now in their midst, building them up where they are torn down and propping them up on every leaning side. The gospel is found wherever poor people struggle for justice, fighting for the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what I love about James Cone is that he, more than any other theologian I've ever read, has this incredible ability to take the gospel, this ancient message that Christ embodies in his own flesh that happened 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East in a completely foreign country with a completely foreign culture. James Cone has the uncanny ability to take the essence of that gospel and place it squarely in our time and in our place. When he says that the gospel is with every poor person who is struggling for justice and fighting for the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, James Cone is saying in no uncertain terms that the gospel is for here and now for Americans who are poor and crushed and struggling and beaten down. And that is our task. Our task as a church is to take that gospel that essence of what Christ embodied, and to retranslate it in a way that makes sense for people today. And just like Christ, to invite them into that encounter with God. The problem is that we tend to take that gospel and instead of inviting people in to the divine presence of a liberating God, we have this tendency in America to take that gospel and turn it into a formula just like that gospel tract, to give it five points and an illustration and a pre-written prayer that you can pray and be taken care of. And then we take that gospel and we brand it, we give it a slogan, we give it a logo, and we mass produce it for consumption on a wide scale and we sell it for a profit. And the problem with commodifying the gospel in that way is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ just becomes another product that you can buy off the shelf, it has the exact same effect as all the products that we buy every single day. Every new gadget, every new service that you buy into, every new subscription that you tap into always carries that tantalizing promise of freedom and liberation from all of your mundane existence. But at the end of the day, those consumer products end up ruling us. They end up locking us in a prison of eternal, endless, unsatisfying consumption. And the problem is when we turn the gospel into that kind of product, we completely rob the gospel of its power to bring about new birth and transform our lives. The gospel then becomes its own kind of prison. Suddenly, what we're inviting people into is not an encounter with the liberating and divine presence of God. What we're inviting people into is just another beautiful prison with stained glass walls 
that require that we think a certain way and speak a certain way and believe a whole list of things in order to be considered right and good and acceptable to whatever that particular church considers right and good and acceptable. And we should not be surprised that today people are leaving that prison faster than ever. The question in this series, of course, is why church? Why should we expect anybody to be a part of a church in today's day and age? And my answer to that question is, we can only expect people to be a part of church if church ceases to be just another beautiful commodified prison and instead becomes a group of people who have been liberated in their lives because of their encounter with a divine presence. And because they have had an encounter with the divine presence, they are able to bring that same liberation to other people who are oppressed and poor and broken and crushed under the heels of the prevailing powers in our society. That is our job. And to the extent that we as a church at the Oceanside Sanctuary can perform that job, to the extent that we can with authenticity say, yes, I have encountered something greater than me and it has delivered me from my bondage. Unless we can say that genuinely and truly, then we really have nothing to offer other people because that's the heart of the gospel. As we continue in this series, uh, I want to invite you to reflect on these same questions. And I want to start today by asking you to reflect on these two questions. Question number one, how is it that God has been a liberating presence in your life? How has God embodied that gospel of liberation and freedom that James Cone speaks of in that quote that I shared today? And the second question is, how has God or church sometimes been just another beautiful prison in your life? In other words, how is it that sometimes the gospel has been locked up and misrepresented or commodified in a way that actually didn't produce liberation for you, it produced more oppression? My sense is that all of us have had both experiences. We have all experienced that tangible almost feeling that something is in the room that is freeing us from our past hurts, our past wounds, our past oppressions, our past traumas. And we probably have all had that experience where we bought into a commodified form of religion that produced nothing but more death and oppression in our lives. If you're willing, I'd like to invite you just to share your answer to those two questions today in the comments on Facebook or YouTube and encourage each other, respond to each other, and the things that you share, and fellowship together in those comments. I also want to invite you to a couple of other things. The first is, um, like I said at the beginning of this message, our church is in the process of redefining and revising our values, our vision, our mission, and our priorities. And as we do this over the next couple months, I want to invite you to read a book called A New Kind of Christianity by Brian McLaren. This is not a new book, it's an old book actually, it's about 10 years old, but it's a great book for helping Christians 
to rethink and reimagine what the possibilities for the gospel could be in our time and in our day. And I actually think this book is more relevant than ever. This is the book that our book club has been reading that we're going to be meeting about this week. But it's okay if you're not in our book club. I want to encourage you, if you're part of the Oceanside Sanctuary, I want to encourage you to get this book and read it so that as we're wrestling with these questions about the future together, we'll have a kind of fresh imagination for thinking through it. The second thing I want to invite you to is this. You, you might remember, for those of you who were around that for my American Gods teaching series this summer, I hosted a series of conversations with other pastors and church leaders uh, to help supplement those teachings. And this time, I'm doing the same thing. So for the next six weeks, I'm going to be hosting six conversations about the topics that I preach on every week. I've invited 20 leaders from churches around the country to participate with me, and each week, Four to five of them are going to join me to have a conversation about these critically important issues. And our first conversation is tomorrow, that's Monday, October 5th, at 10 a.m., and it's going to be live on Facebook. So if you go to our Facebook page tomorrow at 10 a.m., then you'll be able to, to tune in and listen to about five of us tackle the question, what is the future of the gospel? I want to encourage you to join with us tomorrow at 10 a.m. when we do that. If you're not able to join with us for the live session, there will be a recording of it posted on our website, at our Learning Lab page, and of course on our YouTube channel as well. My hope is that these conversations over the next six weeks with other pastors and leaders around the country will again begin to unpack some of these ideas and fire up your imagination for what's possible. That's all I have for you today. Let's just close with a word of prayer and ask God to go with us as we wrestle with these issues together. God, we thank you again for today. We thank you for all of the ways that you meet us and encounter us in your word, the way that you meet and encounter us in the daily activities of our lives, in our relationships with others. And we ask that you would give us a fresh imagination for what it means to be followers of Christ, what it means for us to be a church in community together, and what it means for us to invite others to be a part of church so that it can be a genuinely good, liberating presence in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. We've got a few couple quick announcements before we head off. The first is, is if you're new, as always, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to get to know you more. So you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org slash connect, fill out a connect card, and we'll get to know you a little more there. Next is we are looking for two key volunteers for Sarah's Hope Food Pantry and our worship team. For Sarah's Hope, we're looking for one key person who can sort of oversee operations. Now, you're gonna be trained how to do this, you're gonna be given all the things you need, but we really need one key person for that role. Secondly, we are looking for someone to play rhythm guitar in our worship band. Ideally, this person has played in a band before, is you know very familiar playing rhythm guitar, likes working with a band, so if you know anyone, or even if it's just a random person that you think you might know, reach out to us, let us know. We are very much in need of a rhythm guitar player. We also have our Faith Votes 2020 campaign that just launched, which is essentially to get all of our congregation to be a part of the voting process. We wanna be a 100% voting congregation. 
We're also holding events to help you get educated on what's going on. And one of those events coming up on October 12th at 6.45 p.m. is our Mayor Candidate Forum, where you get to come and ask the mayors who are running for Oceanside what they're all about, get to know the candidates. We really believe that this is a very important election year. We are nonpartisan. We are not actively uh, promoting one candidate over the other, but we want you to be informed. So come on out for that. And lastly, we have Outgrowing Immature Religion, our class led by Jason Coker. It's a very popular class, a very interesting class on how to think about religion in you know some pretty new fresh ways that's gonna be on October 14th starting at 630 every Wednesday for six Wednesdays in a row so for all of that you can go to oceansidesanctuary.org calendar find out more RSVP so we would love to see you there for that finally we are a 501 c3 nonprofit and we rely on the donations and gifts of people just like you to help us achieve and advance our mission so if you believe in what we're doing head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org and consider making a gift today all right everyone have a beautiful and blessed week we'll see you right here next week on facebook and youtube see ya